Crosspoint Church's weekly sermon audio from lead pastor Brad Evangelista. For more information about Crosspoint, visit InsideCrosspoint.com. Amen. Good morning. How are you? Happy Father's Day. You guys doing all right? All right, pep it up a little bit now. It's the day that the Lord has made. We will rejoice and be glad in it. We're going to be in the Psalms today. It's, it's, uh, it's going to be wonderful. We're going to work through the Psalms for the rest of the summer. I'm only going to be here for two more weeks, and then I'm going to be on a mission trip to the nation of California, um, also known as uh, my sabbatical for the month of July. So uh, really looking forward to that. Um, but as you're finding Psalm 90, um, let me mention something to you uh, really important. And if you're using one of the Bibles that's in the pew, or not the pew, the chair, in front of you, you can find that on page 345, Psalm 90. And in fact, uh, if you don't have a Bible, we'd love for you to keep that Bible and make it your own. But as you're finding Psalm 90, uh, let me mention to you something that is, is potentially really, really important. And so if I could, I know sometimes it takes about three or four minutes for you to click into what I say. Um, if you could just kind of click into what I'm about to say right now, that would be really, really good. Um, we, uh, we, I want to let you know about something that is, is uh, going on here at the, ch- that we've been talking about here at the church for quite some time. As many of you may know, the, and maybe you've read in the newspaper, the owners of this shopping center, which includes our building, have recently filed for, for bankruptcy. And so that could mean one of three things for us um, as a church. The first thing it could mean is that um, when people, are, uh, 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 corporations file for bankruptcy, it means that maybe they work it out with the court and then kind of everything returns to normal. That may happen. That's probably unlikely. That's kind of scenario number one. Scenario number two would be that someone else, some other corporation or some other individual a real estate person would purchase this shopping center, and that includes our building and basically everything on this corner except for the hotel, Hampton Inn, and IHOP. So it's kind of 13 acres here on the corner. Our building, the dog shop, um, the place next door, and all the, you know, Cafe Amici and all of that. So someone else could purchase this um, from the bank who ultimately owns the property. Um, and uh, now that, if somebody else were to purchase it, uh, there would be many unanswered questions about, about our future here. Um, certainly we could continue here with a new landlord, um, but ultimately, you know, our time here would run up, and um, then uh, that would be a sort of uncertain future because we wouldn't know if that landlord might have other plans for this shopping center, which may or may not include us. And so that that potentiality is one that's potentially a little bit risky for us as a church. And then the third possibility is that we as a church may have the opportunity to uh, purchase either this building or maybe the whole shopping center um, in the very near future. And the reason I say very near future is because that's just the nature of the way things work in bankruptcy court. And now, you may say, well, why buy the whole thing? We don't need all of this, and that, that's a good thing to think about. But in a situation like this, where this whole property, this whole 13 acres on the corner here, is owned by this company that's now going into bankruptcy, and ultimately the bank owns it, they don't like to kind of parcel it off and sell individual parts. So really, very likely, it's probably a deal where all or nothing would be up for sale. And so we may have an opportunity here, in, as I said, in the very near future to think about 
and possibly put our hat in the ring of purchasing this whole, this whole 13 acres. Now, this is a little bit hard to imagine, but uh, for us just to recreate this building that we're in, this 52,000 square feet, for us to recreate this somewhere else, let's say, you know, three to five years from now, we just kind of followed through with the lease and we just had to move somewhere else because a new landlord came in and didn't want us here anymore, it would be really, really, really expensive. In fact, the, the potential purchase price probably of this whole corner here would actually be far, far less than just recreating this building on a new piece of land somewhere else. And so that's why it's got us kind of thinking, hey, we, we may need to be thinking about kind of being strategic and, and, and being involved in this. And so if this, the reason I'm telling you all of this is for really two reasons. Number one, to call us to prayer as a church. If you're part of a community group, if you're a community group leader, if, if in your families, uh, we would love for you to be praying earnestly about this. And we're going to pray here in just a second. And I'm going to give you some direction on how to pray. And uh, very likely here in the coming weeks, we may have scheduled times of prayer where we meet as a congregation just to go before the Lord, whether it's just opening up the building in the morning or during lunch or in the evening to gather to pray. If this, and the second reason I'm telling you this is because if this becomes a possibility that we may purchase this or attempt to purchase this, uh, of course, that would mean that we would need to raise a relatively, for us, large amount of money in a pretty short time. And if that's the case, um, clearly we will need to, God to be gracious and for the people that call Crosspoint home to be generous. Now here, as we've said, if you're here for the first time, I see a couple of people I haven't seen before, this is your first time here, and you're like, ah, see, all they do at church is talk about money. Well, um, we've been at church for a little over seven years, so 52 Sundays in a year, seven times 52, that's about, that's, that's more than 350. Okay, so let's just say, my math, 30, 52 times seven, so it's at least 350 Sundays here that we've been at church, and this is actually the first time we've ever sort of intentionally talked about the possibility of having to raise money. So if, if, if you like wandered in here and you're like, see, this is valid. Man, that's just the Lord's providence, bro. I promise you, he just brought you here for this particular Sunday for some reason to rattle your cage. I don't know what it is. But, but listen, if there comes a point where, where we do need to raise some money very quickly, friends, we're just going to be above board. We're going to tell you what the figure is that we think we need to raise. There will be no... Uh, There'll be no paper mache thermometers on the stage with little tick marks. You know, there'll be no, there'll be no parking spaces promised to people that give at a certain level. Gold club, you know, standard platinum, you know, what all these strange names. We're just going to tell you like it is. And no manipulation, no Old Testament verses out of context. Just here it is <laughs> for the glory of God. And so, so... Uh, I'm telling you this so that we can pray. This is a call to prayer. These are potentially very exciting times. I mean, gosh, we started out, uh, there are community groups that are much larger than this church was when we started seven years ago um, as a little core group meeting in my living room. And in spite of, like, our naivete, and at times, just sort of ignorance and foolishness as leadership, God has blessed us and caused us to grow, I think, in a healthy way, caused us to be able to uh, propel the gospel in the nations, to see so many young military 
men and women come through this church to be really sent out as, as missionaries into military units. And so th- my sense is, is that God is doing something here in this church, and my great hope is, is that I, I will give the balance of my life to this place. And so our sense is as a leadership that this is a very strategic time for us, a very exciting time for us. So three things I want you to pray about. And we'll send out an email and let you kind of uh, grab a hold of these things a little bit more clearly. First, pray for the owners of this building. Pray for the current owners, that God would be gracious to them, that God would bless them. Secondly, pray for the team of men that we have analyzing and thinking through the various options before the church. And we have been meeting quite a bit here for the past month or so thinking about this. In particular, um, Doug Duncan, our new elder candidate, and Will Brooks have been two men in particular that have a, a lot of wisdom in this area and finances and real estate. And they've been helping the elders and pastors and a few other men that we have gathered to think through this. So pray for this this group of men that are helping us think through these issues. And then thirdly, pray for us as a church that God would show us favor. Our desire from the beginning has, to, has been to make much of Jesus, not to build buildings or make monuments to ourselves or be comfortable. But in as much as maybe purchasing this building and this corner for, the, for future Christian ministry here, at a really bargain rate compared to what it would take for us to do it somewhere else, in as much as God may have that in his plan for this church so that we might be poised to make much of Jesus and give away more money instead of paying lease payments for the rest of our life and maybe purchasing something and retiring that debt and then giving money away for the glory of God, in as much as God may be wanting to do that here now, then let's pray that Maybe God would be gracious to us um, so that we can make much of Jesus for, for the next few decades to the glory of God. So pray along those lines. Well, let's pray now and ask the Lord to help us. And, um, and you'll hear more about this, uh, I'm sure, in the coming weeks, and we'll keep you uh, updated as best we can. Uh, well, let's pray. I'm going to pray for Psalm 90 as well before I preach. Father, thank you for how good you are to us. God, I just think about a little small group of people that met in uh, my living room seven years ago, a little over seven years ago, to think about starting this church and how really gracious you have been to us in these past seven years. Fathers, we think now about uh, these next few months and an opportunity that may be before us. First, we pray for the owners of this building currently. We pray that as they are in bankruptcy, that you would be gracious to them, that you would show them favor, and, uh, and Lord, that they would come through this situation on their feet. Secondly, Lord, we pray for the men that, in particular, are helping us think through this opportunity. Pray that you'd give them great wisdom and humility. We pray, Lord, that you would... Uh, Make our motivation the glory of the gospel and not anything based on our own sort of achievement. But in as much as we might be able to make more of Jesus, if we were to be in a different position with this property, I pray that you would give these men wisdom to help guide the church. 
And then finally, Lord, I pray for the gospel ministry of this church, not just in the coming months, but in the coming decades. Lord, we sense that you are doing something in us for your glory, for eternity, to clarify the gospel to a culture that is awash in Christian nominalism. And Lord, we we sense that you want to continue to have this church grow healthy and encourage so that we would be bold proclaimers of your gospel. And Father, in as much as maybe being here for a long time would help us do that, then Lord bless us. But as we think about these things in the coming weeks and months, Lord, keep our eyes ever fastened on Jesus and not on bricks and mortar and mortgages or buildings or offers, but on the power of the gospel to save. I pray these things for your glory and our joy. And now as we get into Psalm 90, Lord, as we work through the Psalms this summer, give us a heart to sing and worship and think deeply about your greatness. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right, well, let's go. Psalm 90. Psalm 90, if, you, if you're using one of the books, uh, I think I mentioned this, or one of the Bibles in the chair in front of you, you can find it on page 345. Now today begins probably about seven to eight weeks where we'll be working through just selected psalms. Psalms are really the, the sort of hymn book, the song book of God's Old Testament people, the nation of Israel in the Old Testament. They, they were songs that were meant to be actually sung, all right? So these are things that God's people would gather together for corporate worship. God's leaders, men like David and Solomon, would would write these songs, and then the people would sing them. The unique thing about them is is that there are many different types of songs songs or psalms. There are songs of thanksgiving. There are songs, songs of praise, songs of victory, lament. There are even... Psalms that we call imprecatory psalms, which are prayers where the writer is asking God to punish the enemies of God's people. In fact, one that's particularly noteworthy that sort of stands out to me, it's like the height of that category, is Psalm 137, where the writer actually writes and asks God to dash the babies of their enemies against the rocks. <laughs> Yikes. Compare that to sort of the songs we sing. I mean, that, that, how, would, how would that go over in the middle of one of our worship services? Lord, bash their babies against the rocks. Yeah. But that's, that's what it is in the Bible. It's this full range of human emotion. This is what John Piper says. I don't have this quote up there, but just to orient you into the, what the Psalms should do to our heart, John Piper, a pastor in Minnesota, says that More explicitly than all the other books in the Bible, the Psalms are designed to awaken and shape our emotions in line with the instruction they give. What happens when you read and sing the Psalms the way they are intended to be read and sung is that your emotions and your mind are shaped by these Psalms. And so as we read these, remember they're meant to be sung. I mean, come on, we all sing, don't we? I mean, all of us love music, even if if we can't sing and we don't have any instruments that we can play. But come on, how many of you, if you have Sirius XM radio, you know you punch number seven and sing those 70 songs. 
Come on now. And you know you roll up the window and you rock it out. And when you pull up to that stoplight and you just, you're going at it and you look at somebody next to you and they're like, <laughs> you know you're a little embarrassed. But there's something in us that just wants to sing. We sing in the shower. We sing in the car. We sing. And what is it? That's that, that little thing in us that God has programmed us to want to just sing. And so these psalms that we'll look at are psalms to be sung. Specifically, Psalm 90 is probably the oldest psalm in the Bible. It was written by Moses, and we know this because it says at the beginning, a prayer of Moses, the man of God. And so Moses is very early on in the history of the Bible, and most of the psalms are written by David. This one's written by Moses, so hundreds of years before David. And the setting for Psalm 90 is, is that Moses has led God's people out of Egypt. Remember, we've been talking about this in Habakkuk, kind of going through the Old Testament storyline. Moses has led God's people out of Egyptian captivity. God has rescued his people by parting the Red Sea. And now they're in the wilderness. And now, in Numbers chapter 14, basically the people are complaining and groaning because they've gone through the Red Sea, they've been in the wilderness, and now they're at the edge of the promised land to get back into the land that God had promised them. And, and Moses sends out two spies, Joshua and Caleb, along with other spies, and they look into the promised land, and all of the spies come back to report. So the spies are kind of like a, a recon unit, and they're sent to look and spy out and see what's there in the promised land. The majority of the spies come back and say, oh, there's no way. There's all these huge people there. There's no way that we can conquer them. Basically give Moses a very pessimistic report. But there's two, Joshua and Caleb, that say, no, 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 we can do this, man. This place is a, a land f flowing with milk and honey. We can do this. Let's go. But the people are discouraged by the report of the majority of the spies. And then they start to grumble to God, right? And so they're there at the brink of getting back into the place that God wants them to be. And now they grumble. In fact, they say, God, you should have just let us die in Egypt. We were better off as slaves. And then Moses realized that God is going to get really angry with their terrible attitudes. He goes before God and he says, God, please don't, please don't punish these people for their horrible attitudes. And God says to Moses, the beginning of this time in the wilderness, he says to them, listen, Moses, I'm, I've had it with this generation. I've had it with them. I rescued them out of Egypt, part of the Red Sea, brought them into this place, and now, just because there's some big guys in this promised land, they think I can't handle this? Here's what I'm going to do to them. Nobody in this generation is going to make it into the promised land. You're going to wander for 40 years in this wilderness, all this all this generation is going to die, and their children are going to make it into the promised land. But none of these cats that have been grumbling at me are going to make it into the promised land. And that's where we find ourselves. And very likely, right after that, Moses writes this song. A real, a really a prayer, a lament, to say, God, be gracious to us in spite of our horrible attitude. So we're just going to read through it. No notes. Just read through it. Make a few points. And wrap it up. Let's read. I know that was a long introduction. You still with me? All right, let's read. A prayer of Moses, the man of God. Lord, you have been our dwelling place in all generations. 
before the mountains were brought forth, or ever you had formed the earth and the world, from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. Think about Moses' perspective as he's saying this now. I mean, this is a people of the land. These are people that are descendants of Abraham's promise, and they've been thinking about land all through their generations, and God has told them that he is going to promise them this land, and they were in this land at the end of Genesis, and then they, they find themselves in Egyptian captivity, and now God rescues them from Egyptian captivity and is now going to eventually bring them back into this land, but now Moses sort of has this epiphany, and he's realizing God ultimately You've created a people not so that they would rest in a geographical place or not that they would be a particular ethnicity, but that that they would rest in you. Lord, you have been our dwelling place in all generations. The applications are, are numerous. I mean, just think about it. Think about just the mentality we get into as Christians. Think about, God, if, if only I could be there, if I could get that job or have that house or be married to that type of person, or have this or that, then I will be satisfied. If we could get back into this promised land, then, like we're banking our happiness in some sort of place, and Moses reminds himself, no, no, Lord, you ultimately are our dwelling place, and you're so powerful that before the mountains were brought forth, you were there. In fact, he says that you were from everlasting to everlasting. Just think about this now. There are some difficult truths in the Bible, uh, and, and one of the things that we like to do here, we think it's good for our souls, is to think deeply about the difficult truths in the Bible. And we don't shy away from those. It's one of the reasons we just preach through books of the Bible, so that we don't skip stuff. Um, so if we're going through 1 Corinthians, we're going to talk about divorce and remarriage, and speaking in tongues, and Guys that get kicked out of the church for having an inappropriate relationship with their stepmom. So we're going to talk about it. And when we go through Ephesians 1, we're going to talk about the sovereignty of God in salvation and all things and how these things intersect with human responsibility. We're going to wrestle with these things. But, but, but listen, I think all of the difficult truths in the Bible to sort of comprehend rest under the eternality, if that's a word. And I, I might have just made it up, but I think you know what I'm talking about the eternality, the eternal nature of God. Like God has no beginning. God didn't start. So if you're wondering kind of like, well, uh, how, how does God's sovereignty intersect with human responsibility? How, how, does, how does this difficult truth, how does providence work out? What's God's relationship with evil and sin? I mean, all those are worthy discussions, but, but, but they're to some degree unanswerable here in this life. But I'll tell you what is completely unanswerable is the fact that we cannot wrap our minds around God never started. Like he didn't ever not exist. I mean, just think about if, if you never, if you ever did not exist, you're powerful. Like you're, you're powerful. And that's what Moses is getting at here. You, you're timeless. You're timeless, God. And then he goes into a, 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 a recounting of man and his nature compared, compared to God's eternal nature. Verse 3, you return man to dust and say, return, O children of man, for a thousand years in your sight are but as yesterday when it is past, 
or as they watch in the night. Think about that with God. We see that again in the New Testament. A thousand years is as one day. You ever think about, you know, recently I mentioned that Jennifer had her high school reunion. Um, it, was, it was somewhere north of her fifth year high school reunion. Uh, and it made me remember that this upcoming year in 2013 will be my 20th reunion, college reunion. And so um, I'm just thinking about guys, connecting with guys on Facebook. You know, they start sending out all those messages and looking at pictures. And you think, man, that, that just seems like it happened yesterday. And that was 20 years ago. And, and for God, a, a thousand years is just like yesterday. Verse 5, you sweep them away as with a flood. They are like a dream, like grass that is renewed in the morning. In the morning it flourishes and is renewed. In the evening it fades and withers. Life is fleeting. God is eternal. Life is fleeting. Verse 7, now Moses begins to pray and recount Israel's unfaithfulness right after God was so good to them in rescuing them. Verse 7, for we are brought to an end by your anger. By your wrath, we are dismayed. You have set our iniquities before you, our secret sins in the light of your presence. Again, imagine singing that. Imagine singing that. You know, you know that little horror movie, I Know What You Did Last Summer, or whatever it is? But, I mean, this is God. Like, God, you know what I was doing on Friday night in my dorm room. <laughs> Praise Jesus. I mean, come on. That, think, just think about how raw and honest the Bible writers are compared to our continual happy songs. And I'm all for happy songs, but there just need to be more than happy songs because life isn't always happy. You have set our iniquities before you, our secret sins in the light of your presence. Verse 9, for all our days pass away under your wrath. We bring our years to an end like a sigh. The years of our life are 70, or even by reason the strength of 80. Listen, I promise I did not pick this psalm out because that was in there. And if you're here for the first time today, one of my things that I just say a lot is that, you know, the life that God has given us isn't meant to just be lived for these 70 or 80 years because we are, we are you know, we're made and we're going to live forever, either with Christ or separated Him from ever. And, um, and so I, a lot of times I just throw out there, you know, we're not just made for these 70 or 80 years. I, I didn't get that from this psalm. I just kind of came off the top of my head. And one sweet saint in this church came up to me and she says, hey, Brad, um, Actually, I'm over 80, so if you could bump that up just a little bit. And so lately, lately I've been saying 90 to 80 to 90 or maybe 90 to 100 or whatever, but I, I, I have to admit I feel a bit vindicated that Moses used the same time frame as I did. Um, so, so the years of our life are 70 or, or even by reason of strength 80, yet their span is but toil and trouble. They are soon gone. And we fly away. Life is fleeting, man. I mean, <laughs> life is fleeting. You young, you young soldiers, man, that are just getting stationed at Fort Benning, doing stuff. I mean, I remember like yesterday. It was 19 years ago. Coming up on 20 years ago, I was a, a young lieutenant going through Fort Benning. 
Then I met a girl, and the next thing I know, man, I wake up, I'm over 40, my back hurts, my knee is sore, I got four kids, a mortgage. What? Whoa! Whoa, what, what just happened to me? What just happened to me? I mean, bam, life just happens. The years of our life are 70, or even by reason of strength, 80, yet their span is toil and trouble. They're soon gone and we fly away. Verse 11, who considers the power of your anger and your wrath according to the fear of you? The situation here in these first 11 verses is, is that Moses is recounting God's anger towards his people because of their grumbling and rebellion in the desert. And think about this. God has just parted the waters. He's just caused 10 plagues to hit their captors and rescued them miraculously. And now because they peer over the ridge of a mountain and see some people that they have to battle that seem to be strong, they're wondering, like, God, you brought us here just to leave us alone? And they start to grumble against God. And we see in these words from Moses that Moses' greatest concern is not that they would just die there in the desert and not that these people in the promised land that eventually they'll have to kick out will conquer them. But Israel's greatest concern is God's anger and God's wrath. And, and, and that, that's, that's instructive for us. I, I think that most of us, sort of by default, often see God as merely a, a sort of counselor or spiritual director trying to get us out of sticky situations that we've got ourselves into through sin or as a sort of hostage negotiator trying to secure our release from a captor, maybe a sin that we can't shake. But at its most fundamental level, friends, salvation when properly understood, is realizing that we are saved from God, by God, for God. Do you, do you see that? That our most fundamental problem is not merely our sin or how it has made our lives less than optimal. Our primary problem is, is that we have grumbled, like the Israelites, we have grumbled against a holy and righteous God. And sin finds its seriousness not on a human level, but because of the one to whom it is committed against. And we, we all understand that, right? We all understand that. I mean, if I, if I were to, after this service, I've, I've used this analogy many times, but I think it helps it helps us understand that sin finds its seriousness by the one in who, against whom it's committed. So, so if we were walking around after service and, and just out of some sort of strange like chemical imbalance, I just went and tackled one of you on the cold, hard floors of the foyer and got up and did a chest pump and said, yeah, that'd be really awkward. <laughs> and you might get up and say, dude, what's, like, what's the matter? And, and some other people might be like, Brad, that was terrible. And you're crazy, and I'm never coming back here again. But, but, the, but the consequences would be relatively, like, minute. But if President Obama came to Columbus, and he was speaking at the River Center, and I just jetted down the aisles, and I went to go tackle President Obama on the stage, I, I might get shot because the president of the free world is more important than somebody in the foyer at Crosspoint. Let's just call it like it is. 
I, I know every human being has dignity. I get all that. But, I mean, the consequences of that offense raise with the dignity of the person to whom it is committed against. Do you see that? And so at its most fundamental problem for human nature is not that sin has diminished us, not that it has made us less than optimal, but that we have offended a holy and righteous God for whom all praise and glory is due. And this isn't just philosophical. Let me read this to you right out of the Bible. Romans chapter 5. Somebody was busting my chops the other day. They said, Brad, even if you're preaching out of the Old Testament, you're going to get to Romans somehow. <laughs> you're right. You're right, brother. Romans 5, verse 6. And I don't just make stuff up. This is in the Bible. The whole Bible is weaved together as sort of one storyline of God's glory and salvation through Christ. I want to prove to you here in this scripture that the most fundamental problem for the Israelites and the most fundamental problem for us is not that we have less than optimal lives or that we sin against each other or that we've got to make up, um, you know, compensate for people that we've sinned against or have sinned against us, but our most fundamental problem is, is that we have sinned against the holy and righteous God, and that deserves his wrath. This is what Paul says. For while we were still weak, verse 6 of chapter 5, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Oh, those are some of the most beautiful words in the Bible. Verse 9, here it is. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. So do you see that? We're saved primarily, first and foremost, from God's judgment that we deserved. So we're saved from God, by God, for God. And the Israelites, just like we, missed this. And that rouses God's anger and judgment. And that brings us back to Psalm 90 and verse 12. Now listen to this. This is the turn. This is the pivot point of this psalm. We're going to finish up quickly here. This is what is so amazing about this psalm is Moses is lamenting to God about the unfaithfulness of the people. He's saying, God, you're holy your wrath is bearing down on us. We deserve it. This generation is going to die in the desert. They're not going to see the promised land. We deserve it. Woe is us. And you would think that we could end it there or that Moses' logic after sort of addressing the situation might be, so since that's the case, let's just live it up for the next 20 years or 40 years or however long we have. Let's just eat, drink, be merry, and have a party and watch football because it's hopeless. But that's actually not the way Moses takes it. Now listen to verse 12. He says, because of this, because your wrath is kindled against us, and because you're holy and we are frail, therefore, verse 12, teach us to number our days so that we may gain a heart of wisdom. So now, so now it's, I mean, it was, this, this ship was sinking. God is angry at us. And now Moses turns it around and said, okay, because of this, God, now be good to us and teach us to number our days. You've got to act for us, God, because we cannot act for ourselves. He goes on to say in verse 13, Return, O Lord, how long? Have pity on your servants. Now listen to this, verse 14. 
satisfy us in the morning with your steadfast love that we may rejoice and be glad in all our days. You make us glad for as many days as you have afflicted us and for as many years as we have seen evil. Let your work be shown to your servants and your glorious power to their children. Let the favor of the Lord our God be upon us and establish the work of our hands. Yes, God, establish the work of our hands. So, so listen, this is, this is amazing. Here, this is where the gospel is in Psalm 90. You have to get this. This is the only thing I want you to remember from, from, from Psalm 90, if you're going to remember one thing. Maybe, maybe remember a few more things. But if you're just going to remember more, just this thing. Do you see that what Moses is saying is, God, we deserve your wrath. And that doesn't send him down into sort of a pity party, sort of annihilationism, a sort of kind of like, well, say la vie, it's going to be God's angry at us, so just let me just, let me just kind of live out my days. No, he says, then God, teach us your ways. And then he says, after you teach us your ways, that doesn't mean that it sends us into sort of self-effort. Like, God's angry at me. I, I really haven't done what I'm supposed to do. Now I know that I should do better. Now I'm going to do, do the best I can to like, make up for this. No, he says, God, you satisfy us. You make us glad. Let your work be shown. Let the favor of the Lord be upon us. You do it, God. You do it. You know what that is? Moses is pleading for grace. He's pleading for grace. He's saying, God, you are the one that ultimately must do this for us. Moses is not saying that they must grit their teeth and try harder. He's not saying that they should do better than their parents' generation. He's pleading for grace. And friends, this is the gospel. The message of Christianity, the message of the Bible, the hope of the gospel is not you have sinned. Now you have realized that you've sinned. And now you need to try harder. And maybe God won't be angry anymore at you. And friends, friends, that's what millions of Christians hear week to week. Try harder. Give more. Speak in tongues. Do this. Do that. Give a little bit more. You know, be part of this. Be part of that. It's all just another sort of works-based righteousness. But Moses is not going there. He's saying, God, you do it. You be gracious to us. And again, this is, this is just gospel out of the New Testament. Let me read and end on Titus chapter 3, starting in verse 4. And I think this is just the heart of it all. This is the gospel. I, I want us to see that God intends to fuel our obedience and our good works by bringing us to a place where we must plead for grace. God intends for us to do good works, but only out of a result of our understanding of his grace. So, so let me read Titus chapter 3, verse 4. Paul writes this, he says, But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, 
Okay, so let's pause there. Let's put a parenthesis in there for Psalm 90. Not because this second generation did better than their parents' generation. Not because you cleaned your act up. Not because things were really going poor to you and somebody invited you to church and you heard a moralistic message and so you stopped smoking or drinking or you know, doing this or doing that or going to rated R movies or, 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 or watching you know, Alabama football. I, I don't know what your sin is, but, but, but I just had to wake you up. I don't know if you guys are still with me. I know it's been long. But, but see, it's not some moralistic message. He didn't save you because you got cleaned up. He saved us not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewing the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior. Okay, so what happens is, is that this is how God saves people. He, he awakens their dead heart. He causes by his grace for the message of the good news of what Jesus has done on the cross to hit their heart. He makes them alive. He gives them the gift of repentance and faith so that they can make a decision, their own responsibility to turn away from trusting in themselves or turn away from sin and to trust in Jesus wholeheartedly and his work and what he has done to intercept God's wrath on their behalf. That's what it means to be a Christian. God makes us alive, Ephesians 2. God pours out his grace, pours out his mercy, breathes life. The Holy Spirit brings the the gospel to bear on a person's heart, gives them an ability to understand it, whereby they respond to it in repentance and faith. And now they're alive. And and here, listen to this now, because this this is the point I'm trying to make. Back in Psalm 90, listen to what Paul's reasoning is, what happens when you understand that. Okay, verse 7. So, so God pours out this grace on you, makes you alive by nothing you've done, so that being justified by his grace, in verse 7, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Listen to this, verse 8. The saying is trustworthy, and I want you to insist on these things so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. So do you see what it is? Paul is saying there is, is yeah, it, it, God wants you to do some stuff. He wants you to obey like your parents' generation did not obey in the desert. He wants you to walk in his ways. But your efforts to do that aren't going to save you. It's not works and then justification. It's justification, God's grace, and then works. And he's saying that our ability, like our motivation, our fuel for obedience, our fuel for being the type of dads that we should be, and our fuel for being the mothers and wives and workers and just people that we're called to be in this world must come from an understanding that God has been gracious to you so that you might promote his work, so that you might display his gospel, not so that if you do these things, then God will be pleased to you and you barely make it in by your works. Friends, the dividing line between that little point is the dividing line between Christianity and all other religion that is dead. And right there in an Old Testament psalm where Moses is lamenting the disobedience of his people, he calls out the gospel and says, God, you must be gracious to us. Friends, listen to this. Don't, don't, don't miss this point. And some people say, God, all you do, talk, all you do Brett, is talk about the gospel. Do you see that the gospel is all that matters? Because the gospel fuels our obedience. The gospel, when we rightly understand it, then becomes the motivation to live for God because we realize that if he saved us back in Egypt, 
then this little thing that he's got to do here to get us into the promised land is no big deal because he's going to do it. God doesn't save his people to merely let them die on the border of his will for their lives. He saves them so that then they will devote themselves to good works and fuel obedience for the rest of their lives. And that's the gospel. That's the plan of God from Genesis to Revelation. That's what Psalm 90 is about. That's what Romans 5 is about. That's what Titus is about. And the, the line, though, can be so deceptive, can it be? Come on, I fall into this trap all the time. You know, if I'm feeling like maybe somebody's a little upset at me, you know, my natural inclination is to try and work myself back into favor. You know? I feel like maybe I haven't, you know, made contact last couple times up to bat in the pulpit. I feel like I gotta like study a little harder and give a good one, you know? <laughs> so, then, so then I'll be like, yeah, I'm, I'm back in the groove. You know what I mean? And you know, you just, you, you got some pending decision that you gotta make. And so you like, you maybe stop watching that guilt or guilty pleasure TV show for a week leading up to it. So maybe God will like, oh, 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 they're serious now. Let me sprinkle pixie dust on them for this week. Yeah. Do you see what that is? Do you see what we're doing there? We're basing God's favor on our work. And, and, and you know why Christians need to hear this? It's because even the people that understand the gospel the best, this is our default mode, don't we? You know? And we just, we just season it with good works, and it's kind of like karma. God, I'm going I'm to give you a little bit of this. I'm going to give you a little bit of this so that you will give me a little bit of that. And friends, that's death to the soul. John Bunyan, the great Puritan writer, writer of Pilgrim's Progress, the most read book other than the Bible in Western civilization, says something to the effect of that the law, meaning works-based righteousness, the law commands us to run and work, but gives us neither hands nor feet. But better news the gospel brings. It bids us to fly and gives us wings. There's no sweeter truth in the world than that. Understanding this gospel gives us wings and bids us to fly. Friends, if you're not a Christian, I hope that you've heard these words. I hope that God has been kind to give you a heart to hear these words and understand them so that you might turn away from trusting in your own works and your own relative morality. and You might turn and trust in Jesus, even now. You don't need to fill out a card or recite a prayer. You need to repent and believe. You need to look away from yourself, and you need to look to Jesus. Do that even now. Don't require perfection from yourself. You'll never get there. You have doubts in your mind? Oh, welcome to a merry, a merry tribe of people that struggle with doubt. Join us. We occasionally doubt too. Doubt your doubt for once and look to Jesus right now, right now. Look to him and say, Jesus, I've been running and working. And only you can bring life. 
Turn and trust in Jesus right now. Christian, are you prone? Are you prone to workspace righteousness like I am? Look to Jesus even now. Look to Jesus and be reminded that it's grace, all grace. Lord, you must satisfy us, not my good week of morality. Let's pray. Father, as we close our time of looking at your word and now move to respond to you, I pray that you would help us. I pray for my friends in this room who are still trusting in themselves, still trusting in morality, or or maybe they're aware that they're not believers and followers of Jesus and they're hanging on to some counterfeit pleasure and trading it in for the creator of the universe and his glory. God, I pray that you'd give them the gift of saving faith and repentance so that they could turn away from those things. Turn away from trusting in themselves. Turn away from wasting their life in counterfeit pleasures. Trust in Jesus. Friends, for, uh, Lord, from my friends that are in this room that are already believers in Jesus, would you renew our understanding of grace? Would you help us to see that salvation means that you haven't just saved us from a less than optimal life. You, you haven't just saved us from bumping into a door or tripping on a curb. But you have saved us from the diesel truck of your wrath that was bearing down on us, rightfully so. And you, by grace, have snatched us through no merit of our own and saved us from yourself, by yourself, for yourself. Remind us of this because it seems like you have written in your word very clearly to us that deepening our understanding of this and reminding ourselves of this fuels our obedience. So God, remind Christians of the gospel today and let us sing correspondingly in these few moments. I pray this in Jesus' name.